You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, your fortnightly podcast on all things defence and strategy. Later in this episode, is Australia prepared for the opioid crisis? I spoke with former Ottawa Chief of Police, Fern White, to talk about the biggest challenges facing police today. Do you know much about pill testing? Is it something that Canada does? And yeah, we've, we, we've rolled it out to almost all of our music festivals. I think a suggestion uh, not to do it is um, naive. But first up, the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong continue to rage on and the world is fixed on how and when Beijing will intervene. As the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China looms closer, our two grumpy strategists, Michael and Marcus, discuss the possible outcomes in Hong Kong. Well, hello, Michael. It's hard to ignore the fact that the protests in Hong Kong are continuing and don't seem to be abating in any way whatsoever. You've been thinking about it, writing about it, and just recently you were in Taiwan for some time. And one would imagine that the Taiwanese are following this very closely as a potential harbinger of uh, their future. What did you learn uh, from your engagement with the Taiwanese about Hong Kong? Well, I learnt that they're a very analytic, intelligent bunch of people with a very strong appreciation of the implications of what's happening in Hong Kong for their own futures. And uh, their probably their biggest uh, takeaway look at Hong Kong is the message it sends about the end of the one country, two systems model which is the model that the Chinese government has been offering Taiwan as part of uh, reunification. So most of the people that I spoke to uh, in positions of knowledge in Taiwan see that model as dead. It can't look like a very good deal from the Taiwanese side at the moment. Well, it doesn't look like a deal that even if it's offered would be delivered upon by the Chinese state Mm -hmm. uh, because the obvious thing is one country, two systems was promised to the people of Hong Kong until 2047, and it's only 2019 now. Mm-hmm. Now, you've been uh, thinking about potential outcomes of the crisis in Hong Kong. You sort of see three big future paths, I guess. What are they, and what do you think is the most likely one? Well, none of them are particularly good, um, but but the first one is just a continuation of what's happening now. So large numbers of Hong Kong people, not just a small bunch of radicalists and, and violent actors, as the Chinese media would like, like people to think, large numbers of the Hong Kong population keep getting out on the streets of Hong Kong for weeks yet. Uh, and the demands they make of the Hong Kong and Beijing authorities are simply not met. But presumably that can't keep going forever so well i think that's the point so you you would have to move to option two or three well no so path one is the hong kong and beijing authorities let those protests continue with a little bit of control from police and other authorities but they really just wait them out Mm -hmm. so they wait for the energy energy of the protesters to exhaust itself on the itself on the streets of hong kong but the so, obvious problem so far with that is no sign of that. that's not happening. Yeah. So uh, that probably, if that just continues, I think it gets to a point where Beijing will not tolerate being seen to have lost control of Hong Kong. Uh, there's, a, there's a middle path, 
And the middle path is one, if China were a democracy, they would be taking, and they would have taken before now, which is a strange notion of listening to what the people of Hong Kong want. And what they really want is a continuation of one country, two systems until 2047. And they don't want a contraction of the rule of law before that time or a contraction of their freedom of speech before that time. That's really what the extradition bill ticked mm, But that, off. that would suggest that there are other options uh, available to people than the undisputed rule of the Chinese Communist Party. Well, until 2047, that was meant to be the deal. Mm. Um, but I think what Carrie Lam showed with her extradition bill was the assimilation was being accelerated. So um, it's up to Z uh, to, to say, look, uh, Carrie Lam got this wrong. Restoring order in Hong Kong means a public inquiry by a credible independent Hong Kong figure, maybe a former judge, um, maybe with an amnesty for police and protest of violence. But as I say that, I can hear that it sounds incredible and I don't think that is a path <coughs> that the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party is going to take. No, it hasn't been very good in the past at admitting it made mistakes. Well, if you by definition, don't make mistakes. It makes them hard to admit. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think the most disturbing but most likely path is that after the 1st of October 70th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party celebrations, which are happening in Tiananmen Square, ironically enough, um, the CCP uses lethal force against the people of Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And whether it does that through the People's Armed Police or the People's Liberation Army or a combination of the two with some uh, hired undercover thugs, I think that's an open question. But using violence to reassert political control of Hong Kong and send a message to the people of Hong Kong, the 1.4 billion people of China and the world that the Chinese Communist Party is in control, I think is really the more important mm. important thing to President Xi. And you think that's of, of the three paths the most likely? I do. That's a very depressing thought. Well, the People's Armed Police is a paramilitary organisation and it has armoured vehicles and other things. Um, but it doesn't exist to be kind. It exists to exert lethal force on China's own population. So um, the fact that the Chinese Defence Minister, General Wei, uh, publicly and proudly said on the 2nd of June this year that the use by the Chinese government of the PLA to massacre Chinese citizens in Tiananmen Square 30 years ago was correct policy, I think adds credibility to this rather nasty scenario. Uh, how do you think this will uh, figure in the upcoming meeting between Prime Minister Morrison and President Trump? Do you think it will figure at all? I think it will, um, and I think it will mainly show that the judgments in the US national security strategy and national defence strategy are holding up well uh, with the primary one I'm talking about being the American recognition that it is in strategic competition with China and with Russia because um, the, this use of power by the Chinese state is a, a prime example of the different model of governance that 
China is offering to its own people and the world, and a statement of growing confidence in the use of that power by the Chinese government. And so is there anything that anyone can do about it? Well, I think so. I think we've already got the precedent in front of us of Tiananmen Square. Now, um, people can say that not enough was done, but various world leaders did take actions as a result of uh, the use of lethal force by China against its own people at that time. Bob Hawke, for example, gave political asylum to around 20,000 Chinese students and families uh, living in Australia at the time. So world leaders need to act, but they need to say that there will be consequences if China acts this way before China acts this way, because that's part of deterring this very ugly human outcome. So there are things that world leaders can be doing to dissuade uh, the Chinese Communist Party from violent entry into Hong Kong. Why aren't people speaking up? Well, I think it's called money. Um, think about the Australian economy. Um, we have now got a record two-way trade balance with China, I think. It's about um, 40% of our exports. Exactly, exactly. And that, that has risen considerably just in the last mm -hmm. two years. So not disturbing the flow of money uh, to various world economies will be on leaders' minds. Uh, another thing that will be on world leaders' minds, including the Australian Prime Minister's mind, is the security and safety of the expat populations in Hong Kong. So I think there are about 100,000 Australian expats in Hong Kong and having them hostage to punitive actions by the Chinese government, as we've seen with other Australian nationals in mainland China because of Australian government statements and positions on Chinese actions will, would no doubt be in, in his mind. Uh, so I think this is about learning to deal with the Chinese economy and the Chinese state uh, in different ways. The Chinese government is adept at prosecuting its own interests while maintaining full, th full throttle trade with countries mm -hmm. when, when it needs to. Um, so for example, um, they're perfectly happy having cyber intrusions into the Australian parliament while shaking hands over trade deals. Um, we need to be as ruthless in asserting our strategic and national interests while maintaining the economic connection. I find it strange that people say that the Chinese have huge amounts of leverage over us. I mean, traditionally you would say that we, exporting all of these key supplies to China, have great leverage over China. So we supply their coke and coal, steel, natural gas. One would say that that actually gives us great power. Well, in fact, you'll hear exactly that when people talk about Russia as an energy supplier to Germany. Um, you'll hear quite informed analysts say that Russia has enormous leverage over Germany because of that um, energy supply. But we don't appear to think of Australia as a resource or energy superpower mm. when we are. I wonder if it's our tall poppy syndrome at work, where, again, where we understate our power and, and influence in the world. Well, I think it's, it's a reason that uh, despite 
the Australian government's strong decisions on things like foreign interference and some big foreign investment cases um, where it's rejected Chinese investment in critical infrastructure. Despite those things, the two-way trade with China has grown. So clearly, the Chinese government understands their dependence on Australian imports to it. I guess you could argue it's a case of good fences make good neighbours. We've stated our expectations very clearly and the Chinese understand that. Yes. So despite the froth and bubble coming out of the Chinese state media, the trade has continued. And I think that should give us confidence that if we're polite and clear about our national interests, uh, that will be understood, even if it's not liked. Thank you for that, Michael. Well, thank you, Marcus. I'm, I'm sorry that uh, we weren't as grumpy as, as I would have liked to have been, but I suppose this is a case where uh, it's serious enough to drive out the grumpiness. Thank you, Marcus. Finally, I spoke with Senator Vern White, former Chief of Police in Ottawa, about the challenges facing police today, the opioid crisis, and his take on pill testing. Vern, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So after an extensive career in policing, you've had the opportunity to look at it through the gaze of a civilian, a legislator and an academic. And I was curious for your perspective now, what is the biggest challenge that police specifically in Canada are facing? I think it's multiples. Uh, I think one of the challenges we're facing today is a cyber piece where most of us are unprepared to really manage the challenges we're facing. I think um, the expectation is that governments will help to or help the police to kind of win over that uh, gap, but it's coming very slowly. And, and I think the cost, the ability to catch up to private enterprises is not there. I don't think mm. we'll ever catch up. So I think instead we have to look for alternatives. I think one of the secondary areas that I see as having challenges in, in particular is the fact that we are facing both Australia, Canada, probably all of the five eyes, and a continuous concern around terrorism. Mm. And although that is a concern of the police, and we do put a lot of resources into combating terrorism, the reality is those resources are coming from often the same places where we would target organized crime. Mm. So as a result, organized crime, I would argue, has become our greatest national security threat today, and certainly in Canada and Australia. Now you look at Australia, $18 billion, give or take, being laundered through this country every year. And yet if you ask Australians what's the biggest concern they have, they would identify terrorism, even though the likelihood of an event is very small, mm. uh, whereas organized crime is blossoming and growing in, in Australia today. Mm. As we talk about organized crime, what are their, I guess, their main business model? Is, is drugs still the main income for organized crime? Or? Yeah, drugs and money laundering, which mm -hmm. typically comes from a drug uh, background anyway. I mean, anywhere where they can pull in cash uh, quickly. If you look at the drug issues we're facing in North America today, it's opioids primarily, where I think Australia is probably still battling the crystal methamphetamine, methamphetamine, and moving toward an opioid uh, market uh, since about 2013 or 14. You're about six years behind us on opioids, mm -hmm. um, but certainly on the exact same path we were in Canada uh, back in 2012, 13, 14. So it's anticipated that you'll end up where we are in the next couple of years. So if we're heading towards an opioid crisis in Australia, are we prepared for that? Is our police force ready for that? Two things. One, your, your police force, your police service, emergency services are not ready for it and your country is not ready for it. I mean, if you look at the uh, wastewater reports that have come out in the last three years, if you look at the Pennington report that's come out on overdose deaths in the last three years, 
you will see that your opioid overdose deaths are growing every year. In fact, your per capita numbers are much behind the United Kingdom, who've already identified that they're in a crisis now. <clears throat> the difference is, is that your opioids predominantly are coming from a legal source and being used illegally, which is where Canada was about 2013. Mm. But the expectation will be that over the next 24 months, as you're seeing with some of the seizures out of China and elsewhere in Southeast Asia, um, where precursors or ingredients are destined for Australia being picked off, the expectation is that you will actually blow up like we have when it comes to the basement grade opioid development and manufacturing that is then being used to taint other drugs. For mm. example, in Canada today, you'll find marijuana dusted with some fentanyl. You'll find cocaine with fentanyl, which synthetic opioid and narcotic have no connection really. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll also find counterfeit uh, drugs being sold on the streets. And you're seeing some of that now. And that's what I think John Ryan and people from the Pennington Report and, and others are trying to identify to Australians that you need, to, there's an opportunity to get ahead of this, mm. uh, but that opportunity could be lost very quickly. So specifically, what can <clears throat> the Australian police force be doing to get ahead? Well, three things. One, I think, is an immediate would be the rollout of naloxone mm -hmm. or Narcan, which is a reversing drug for people who overdose on opioids. I mean, yep. right now you're about 1,770 people died last year mm -hmm. from overdoses. Two-thirds or more of those were accidental. Access to naloxone, we have found, has saved thousands of people uh, over the last um, 24 months in, in Canada. So I think rolling the locks on out, training police officers, it used to be injectable-based. Mm -hmm. It's now a nasal spray, which means that emergency service workers outside of paramedics are more likely to use it. Mm -hmm. But in Canada, you'll find the locks on on every police officer's hip, every firefighter's hip, every paramedic's kit, every school teacher, every high school in the country right now will have naloxone available because they're fear of the overdoses. Mm -hmm. And the reason... Today, a lot of the people who are overdosing are in, in Australia are addicts. Mm. The reason it really became a big issue in Canada was when we started seeing people who are recreational users or low-risk youth, yeah. in some cases, who are buying uh, an oxycodone 80 on a Friday night and finding themselves uh, um, overdosing an hour later because they didn't expect that it would be a counterfeit. So that's the naloxone piece. The other side of it, I think, is trying to target uh, the source countries, first of all, uh, so China and other countries in South uh, Southeast Asia who are providing the ingredients for uh, fentanyl in particular. Not that you can win that fight, but it's a fight valuable to have mm. because at least you can try to slow down some of the source. Look, your your seizures have never been greater. Charges never been higher. Convictions have never uh, had, had a lower or have been uh, better than they are today. Mm. <clears throat> and yet the price of these, uh, these drugs are still lower than they've ever been. So the path we're on now is not the path we need to be on. So I think uh, there are a number of things you can do when it comes to naloxone, combating source. Primary, though, I would argue, is that trying to decrease demand. Mm. And that's going to be around a lot around uh, uh, treatment programs, supervised consumption sites that have access to uh, medical-grade opioid replacement therapies so that high-risk addicts have something to take other than what they're buying off the streets will help, like the Swiss model has done. Uh, but I, I really think your success can be found in both having access to treatment for addicts, opioid mm. addicts in particular, so you can get them in quickly and early on in their addiction, which is where your greater success story is. And secondly, is educating young people. We found in Ottawa where we have a, a high school education program in every high school for addictions, mm. 
uh, that the number of young people who, who we were able to turn away from uh, street opioids was dramatic compared to other cities in Canada that do not have that program. You know, we're seeing in Edmonton uh, people, teenagers dying every weekend in Ottawa were probably every month. Mm. Um, so our, our high-risk community is still at risk in Canada, in Ottawa. However, our, our low-risk recreational user is not near the risk that it is in other cities that do not have an education program. I wanted to draw on that low-risk user who are um, making up part of these overdose statistics because it's a really big debate um, that's been unfolding in Australia, especially over the last year, is pill testing in mm -hmm. music festivals. It's something that only the ACT does currently and it's been, I think, two trials at a festival called Guru in the Moo. Yeah. Do you know much about pill testing? Is it something that Canada does? And yeah, what's we've, your view? We, we've rolled it out to almost all of our music festivals. I think a suggestion uh, not to do it is um, naive on our part. I mean, any mm -hmm. expectation that there's a negative side to being able to tell a user, recreational and otherwise, mm. that this could kill you and we don't take that opportunity is ridiculous. So yeah. I, I, I don't want to make more of it than that, but I have to say it's a suggestion that by doing this we're propagating the use of illegal drugs is absolute BS. It's not going to change anything. The only opportunity we have to try and educate people today is through a pill testing system. We should be using it mm. every day. And I think one of the positive things that came out of the <clears throat> ACT trials is that the people who participated had opportunity to gain exposure to someone who knows about um, addiction and exactly what the drug is made up. They get to see you know, exactly what is in the drugs. And a lot yep. of people, having actually seen it, decided to be like, actually, you can keep that. I'm not going to take that. Oh, um, so understanding, and I'll give you a perfect example. You know, we had a 15-year-old uh, girl in, in Ottawa who went out with a friend and purchased what they believed was a Percocet from a friend of theirs at high school, took mm. it to, to their home. where watching a movie. They split it in half. One of them died that night. If, if they had gone to a concert or something, that would have been tested for them if they had asked it to. Yeah. And they probably would not have taken that drug. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think the opportunity to engage with them, educate them, because the vast majority don't understand what they're buying, yeah. don't understand what they're taking. As you're seeing in Australia now, and it will continue to grow, and we're, we've been seeing in, in Canada for the last three or four years now, the vast majority of people are not buying fentanyl. They're mm. not buying fentanyl. They're buying something else that they believe is safe. Yeah. They don't realize till after they take it that it's unsafe, that it's been, it's a counterfeit uh, oxycodone, a counterfeit mm. Percocet. Mm. And the amount of money that can be made by drug dealers and drug illegal drug manufacturers is in the millions for tens of thousands of dollars investment that you're never going to win this only on a source uh, on, on uh, source combat. You're going to have to take this from a demand perspective. Mm. And if you can decrease demand by educating young people and by doing pill testing, by having opioid replacement therapy that's accessible and either free or close to free, that's the only chance you have of not ending up where we are in Canada right now, which is 13 people a day dying every day. Now, at the risk of going over time, I did want to talk to you about something a little bit different because I know you and I have known each other for nearly five years now and I remember when we first spoke about this years ago, our perspectives on policing is just so different because mm. of just where I grew up, uh, the way we viewed police and having, you know, never committed a crime to my knowledge myself, but I've still always been taught to instinctively fear the presence of police mm -hmm. um, and it seems to be something that quite a few people in my community share that, that 
that perspective is that when police are present, you're not supposed to feel safe, you feel on edge. And and I know that's such a radically different um, perspective to how you view policing and how you want yeah. policing to be. And so I wondered if you could quickly touch base on, I guess, your ideal policing is community policing yeah, or problem-oriented? Yeah, I think if you go back, you'll see that people talked about a thing called community policing programs across uh, for certain the Commonwealth countries that are developed on the Peel's principles of policing. The challenge is some places, some jurisdictions stopped at community policing, which really was about an openness, but mm. not necessarily about an engagement with the public. So it was about an openness. We're going to have extra stations open in different areas so that mm. you feel we're in the community. But if you really don't flow from community policing to problem-oriented policing, you've missed a real change in policing. And that really is about working with the community to develop solutions. Perfect example I would give is having spoken at a community meeting one day and they were talking about wanting more police presence. And um, asking, I asked the question, do you want us to arrest more people and put more people in jail? And their answer is no, we want to feel safer. Mm. Okay, so what's the path to feeling safer? The path to feeling safer is actually finding solutions for community problems. Yeah. The, you know, drug addiction is a perfect example where an addict, a street addict, will commit four to eight crimes per day to satisfy their addiction. Yeah. Is our goal really to arrest that individual for four to eight crimes a day or is to help them get off drugs? If it's to help them get off drugs, a truly proactive police function will not do that. Mm. We will put them in jail. We will not help them get off drugs. So instead, you have to work with the community to help develop solutions, strategies around access to treatment, drug treatment courts, uh, access to harm reduction models in some cases, and trying to help these people actually have a life that lets them live as normal as they can um, through the systems that are available. A truly police force model that does not do that is not developing solutions around problems. They're only staying stay, standing upstream and arresting people will not be successful. Mm. I bring 30 officers a year from Australia to Canada on a one-week study tour every July. Yep. Every one of them, we put them through. We, we have them spend time at the supervised consumption site so they can see the type of things and people that they're dealing with. And we watch people overdose, in fact, in some cases. And then we introduce them to the uh, the two drug treatment centers that we built in, in Ottawa. The police service raised almost $21 million with other groups to build two drug treatment centers. And we introduce, introduce them to the 57 high schools where we have drug treatment counselors that we've, again, raised money to, to put in place with other partners so that they understand that our goal is to try and help people mm. and reduce crime. Our goal is not to arrest more people and mm. put more people in jail. I think the KPIs, the, the, you know, the key performance indicators, in some cases are, are misunderstood because really the community wants to be safer. They don't want more crime and more arrests. They want to be safer. We don't want the model of Baltimore where one in every eight people has been in a federal penitentiary. We want the model of of Geneva, Switzerland, where the vast majority of drug addicts aren't treated like criminals because, to be fair, most of them are only criminals to satisfy their addiction. Mm. I think finally I might wrap up because you've been to Australia countless times and I'm wondering if this has changed since when I probably first asked you about this five years ago. What is your biggest culture shock when you come to Australia? Outside of our frequent changing of prime ministers, which was happening every time you came here, we did Every time I came, I don't want to talk yeah. about that. They'll remove my visa. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, probably from, from from a community perspective, very similar. I mean, the, the we both have the same history. Uh, we both came to these our kind of respective countries around the same time. We both 
made the same mistakes as Europeans with our indigenous people and mistreated mm. them and have now, after 200 years of mistakes, are now going to spend the next 200 years trying to correct those mistakes. So I think a lot of those things are the same. From a policing perspective, I think the fact that we have uh, multiple jurisdictions of police, 198 police agencies, then mm. we do have different models happening more often. Whereas in Australia, in the state of New South Wales, you'll pretty well have the exact same model throughout the whole state. Yeah. Same in Southern Australia, South Australia, same as Western Australia. So we do have some, some smaller agencies of 1,000, 2,000 officers who are trying some new things that the rest of us can learn from, which is more difficult when you only have a few large agencies. Yeah, and they're able to adapt, I suppose, to the community that they're in. That's Whereas, right. Considering Australia has so many regional communities, it's interesting that we wouldn't have a similar model. Yeah, or, or even if they were treated similarly, in, mm. in other words, that you when, you when you become a rural police officer and those officers actually have an opportunity to create from within, but I'm not sure that it's always that easy. It's, you know, they're being stretched as well from a financial perspective. Mm. I do think you're ahead of the education curve when it comes to Canadian police officers. You've identified the importance of education and policing. Mm. More and more officers are actually going through a uh, university model to become police officers. I use New South Wales with Charles Sturt as an example. Yeah. We don't have one of those in Canada where a university is actually providing frontline police training for police officers. So it's, I think that's helpful for you. Uh, I do think as well, though, that all of us policing in Canada and Australia need to identify that education is as important and as different as training is. Mm. <clears throat> you know, training is to teach you to do the same thing over and over so that it's rote-based for you to always act the same way in the same circumstances. I think the importance of education so you know how to act differently because those circumstances change is also key. Vern, mm. thanks for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Policy, Guns and Money. Please leave us a review on iTunes and if you have any feedback, tweet us at aspie underscore org. Policy Guns and Money is edited by Jerry Cashman and presented by Renee Jones.